Morning, everybody. <laughs> I like that. Uh, my name is Jacob. I'm the youth pastor here, if we haven't met before. Um, a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Paul came to me and was like, hey, uh, I'd like you to preach on March 5th um, because I'm, me and a couple of other pastors are going to be going away to a men's retreat. And I didn't put two and two together until like a week ago, that that means that there was going to be a men's retreat, uh, which, which means that the balance in the room is affected. We have a significant portion of our men gone on this men's retreat. So in, in an attempt to contribute to the testosterone deficit in the room, I decided not to shave my sideburns. I just, I hope that you guys can appreciate my contribution um, I'm hoping you guys feel a little bit of the balance restored. Um, you know, don't worry. My hulking masculinity should make it through, make us all through the day. Um, we've been walking through the writings of Luke in the past couple of weeks, um, specifically looking at the topic of prayer, the theme of prayer, and how Luke treats prayer in his writings. Um, today we're coming near to the end of the book of Luke, and we'll be moving into Acts soon to take a look at that. Um, and so we'll be getting there in a second, but uh, I just want to tell you a quick story really fast. So when I was in high school, um, I was not a very good student. Uh, I, I had fine grades, but I was one of those students that did the bare minimum, right? I would, I would calculate. I'd look at the syllabus and see, like, what things are weighted in what direction? Which teachers are going to ask questions about the reading? And if you don't ask questions about the reading... I'm not going to read. So uh, I w that's the kind of student that I was. And I remember there was one year um, in my ninth grade year uh, when I was taking a biology class. Early on in the year, we had been assigned this year-long project, which are exactly the types of projects I love to procrastinate the most. Um, and if you're a, a parent in the room, you understand what I mean here. The, the knock on your door at like midnight the night before the project's due, like, do you guys have any glue? Where is the glue? <laughs> right? Uh, that was me. My parents can attest to that. Um, but this, this project was a botany notebook. We had to create a botany notebook. Um, and I, the, the scope of this project was much broader than I had anticipated. Um, I completely forgot about the project until like the week before it was due. Um, in this botany notebook, when I looked at the scope and I looked at the syllabus and realized what I had done, I nearly had a meltdown. Um, this botany notebook, I had to have, I think it was 80 different specimens, like flowers, leaves, plant life from our, you know, within Oregonian um, plant life. And I had exactly zero of those. And, and so, and, and not just, like, I couldn't just come in with, like, a wheelbarrow full of, like, the mulch, right? Like, I couldn't just be like, here you go, here's all my specimens. No, they had to be, like, nicely cared for. They had to be dried out. They had to be pressed, right? I had to press each of these 80 specimens and make sure that they were slipped into these nice little envelopes in my, uh, in my notebook so that they could, you know, the clear see-through envelopes. And so I'm looking at this and going, oh, no, what have I done? <laughs> So I conscripted the help of my parents and my grandparents, and we were perusing the neighborhood, going through people's yards, looking for any flowers or leaves that we could possibly find to maybe help remedy the situation. Um, and then I realized, I came back home after um, not finding very many. I think we were probably at about 20 at this point. And I realized 
uh, I looked a little closer in the syllabus, and it was only worth 7% of my grade. Sweet relief. So I just let that sucker slide right off. I turned in my botany notebook, and there were about 20 specimens. Um, they were moldy. They had bugs in them. I mean, they smelled bad. The whole thing, the presentation was horrific. It was terrible. Um, and I probably got like two of the 7% there. Um, but it wasn't worth very much of my grade, so it didn't really matter. Uh, and I passed the class. So this is kind of like a snapshot of how I dealt with high school. Um, and I would be surprised if in my high school career I read more than five books, like cover to cover all the way through, thanks to a little thing called SparkNotes, which nobody in this room should ever use. If you're a student, you should never use SparkNotes because it will help you with everything in your life and it will make your life so much easier. Do not use SparkNotes. Okay, <laughs> just PSA. Uh, I'm not proud of any of this, by the way. My, who I was in high school. And it's kind of like this morning you're my priest, like you're hearing my confession. My hope is that this will stay between you and me. And I'm, I'm really praying that nobody online sends this to my high school teachers because, uh, well, you know, that'd be a little bit embarrassing. Um, but I ended up making it through high school with good enough grades to get into college. When I got into college, I decided I was gonna turn over a new leaf, pardon the botanical pun. Um, I was being offered a fresh start. And I was finally offered an opportunity to learn the things that I actually cared about. Um, and so there was no excuse to not put my all into studying those things. And after all, I was in the biblical studies major. So if I, I had faked my way through that major, I'm pretty sure that's like a go directly to hell, do not, you know, don't pass go, do not collect $200 kind of decision. Um, so I put my all into studying started working really hard. I was reading as much as I could of what I was assigned. I was doing my best to note take. I was trying to comprehend what I was reading, and I started getting really good grades. Um, but this proved to be a setback of its own because I was becoming uh, the teacher's pet in a way, um, the one in the class that always had their hand in the air, uh, the one that had opinions on everything, even when you probably didn't need to have an opinion on that, asking questions that nobody really cared about, right, just to make sure that everybody knew I was a good student. Um, I became like the obnoxious kind of nerd, right, like the, um, actually, like that kind of nerd, right? Um, and I remember that there was one day where a classmate who was about a year older than me came to me and I think he was trying to be nice. I didn't know this guy very well, but he said something to me like, oh, I remember when I was your age and I was entering college, I was just like you. I was the know-it-all. And I was like, oh, that hurt. That felt a little too honest, right? A little too honest. Um, so anyways, in my uh, junior, senior years, I mellowed out a little bit. Um, but I tell you that story because in the passage that we're going to be dealing with today, um, I think that's like the first impression that you can get of one of the characters that we're going to see. So, so let's start in Luke chapter 23, and we'll, we'll get there in a moment. Um, we're coming to a rather heart-wrenching moment in the Gospel of Luke. In this text, it's like we're standing as one of the members of the crowd watching this man get crucified, this man that's been claimed to be the Messiah by those who, who are following him, and, and some say by himself as well. I'm going to start at verse 32 for some context, but we're not going to anchor down until about 39. So I just want to get a little bit of a runway for what we're going to be talking about today. Um, so let's start at verse 32. Two others who were criminals 
were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that's called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. So the place where Jesus is being crucified was called the place of the skull. Um, you've probably heard it called Golgotha before, which is a transliteration from the Aramaic uh, into Greek. Um, and the, the, it was then translated into Latin as Calvariae, which we would recognize as Calvary. So if you've heard of the word Calvary, it's talking about the place of the skull. That's the place where Jesus goes to die. And it's, um, there's a, uh, a spiritual writer at the, around the time of the Reformation that would go on to call Mount Calvary the Academy of Love, because here we see um, the love that Jesus talks about that is no man has any greater love than to lay down your life for one's friends, right? So it goes on in verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. So there's this grand mockery going on of who Jesus is. And the irony, the grand irony in all of this, is that this was Jesus' coronation ceremony. The men who murdered him were calling him what he actually was, thinking they were joking. And here is where we come to our passage for today. It begins in verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And indeed, we justly, for we re are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So some of you have been reading along with us in uh, the New Testament. Uh, we've been reading through the Gospel of Luke. And so you've probably read through this already. Um, but even if you haven't been reading along, you've probably heard the story before. It's a common story, the two thieves on the cross next to Jesus. But there's something incredibly potent, I think, about Christ making his final conversation alive, a teaching moment. Even on this gruesome cross, Christ does not forsake his duty as a rabbi, as a teacher in Israel. And if Jesus is here being the teacher then the strung-up thieves are acting like the students, in a way. Now, the reason I, I tell you about my years as a student a few minutes ago is because I think it's easy to mistake the repentant thief, the thief that turns to Jesus and says, remember me uh, when you come into your kingdom, as a teacher's pet. He's putting down the other classmate, he's siding with the teacher, and then he's kissing up to the teacher so that the teacher will give him a good grade in the end. He's brown-nosing a little bit. Um, it's easy to read it that way. And I think that would have been my first impression as well. But the more I read this passage, there was something that stood out to me. The Spirit kind of highlighted something to me that I don't think I had seen before this. Um, and I remember about a week ago, I was sitting at my desk. My eyes were open, 
my mouth was wide open and I was just shocked because I found something that I hadn't seen before. And so we'll get there, I'm gonna get there. But first, let's switch on the microscope lens and go a little bit deeper into the words of this passage. To begin, I wanna draw attention to the words of the, uh, that are spoken about the unrepentant thief. So this is gonna go back up into the beginning of our passage in, in 39. Um, the ESV says that the, that thief began to rail at him. The, the unrepentant thief began to rail at him. That word is not used in Matthew or in Mark. The word there that the, the ESV uses is, is to mock. And so I was like, ooh, interesting. What's going on behind, you know, under the hood here? So I looked, and the word that's being translated here as rail uh, is actually the word blasphemeo, which means to blaspheme. Interesting. What does that tell us about who Luke sees Jesus to be? Someone who's able to be blasphemed, some, someone sacred, someone divine. Interesting. So what is it that Luke is categorizing here as blasphemy then? It says he, he railed at him, he blasphemed him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Okay, I think this is a little bit of a demanding statement. But I definitely wouldn't go so far as to immediately label it blasphemy. The wicked thief is probably just baffled that the Messiah would be dying on a cross next to him. And, you know, in the off chance that this guy really is the Messiah, he's leveraging his opportunity here. It's kind of like if you, if you were up next for the electric chair, and you look behind you, and the guy behind you is like, just so you know, I'm the warden of this prison. Wouldn't you be like, okay, so if you're the warden of this prison, so maybe you want to, like, get me out of this mess? Like, you want to you wanna get us out of here? Because this is... This isn't going to end well for either of us. And especially, this criminal was Jewish. So he was expecting a Messiah anyways. So, like, this is not an unreasonable thing to ask. Hey, Jesus, if you really are the Messiah, do you mind getting off your butt and doing something here? Because these nail holes aren't getting any smaller. If you're the Savior, get to the saving, right? And I have to be honest, I hear my prayers I hear some of my prayers in these words. I hear um, the times that I've come to God and have said, you know, it would do a lot for your reputation and for me if you went ahead and answered my prayer. If you really are who you say you are, why aren't you answering me? Why don't you answer this prayer, right? How many of you have had that experience before? I'm not the only heretic in here, am I? Um, oddly enough, it's not an uncommon form of prayer even in the scriptures. Um, I'm going to give an example from Genesis chapter 18, but it's, you can find it in the book of Job, you can find it in the Psalms, but um, I'm going to pick on Abraham here. So let's, let's take a look at his bartering on, the, on behalf of Sodom. I think it's a great example. This is Genesis chapter 18, verses 23 through 25. He says, he's talking to God, Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. 
Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right, do what is just? If we rephrase that, you might say, are you not the judge of the earth? Judge justly, which sounds a lot like, if you are the Messiah, save yourself and us. This is only one of countless examples you can find. So against the backdrop of scriptures, this doesn't seem too abnormal of a prayer to offer. But regardless, the Messiah remains silent. Jesus doesn't answer him. And instead, the other criminal pipes up in his defense. And he says, this is verse 40. Do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. It seems as though the criminal has come to terms with his punishment here. He's no longer fooling himself. He's untangled his fear or his anger or his, his, uh, his negativity towards his own death from his conscience. And he can see clearly that this is what he deserves. And in that moment of clarity, this, this criminal lectures the other criminal, basically saying, you know what you did. You know you deserve this. Take it like a man. But then in that same moment of clarity, he takes note. He, makes a, he, makes an, uh, he points out the shining example of corruption and injustice that's hanging between the two of them. But this man has done nothing wrong. And what an irony it is that in the midst of this crowd, the most knowledgeable witness is the one that's hanging next to Jesus on the cross. What a coincidence that the man on death row, the criminal, the one who has been convicted of crimes, sentenced to death, is the one that's speaking the truth, what's right. All the elders and the governors and the religious leaders who were charged with keeping the, the standard of justice, who were entrusted with the law and being righteous, Look Jesus in the face, look righteousness himself in the face, and turn the other way. But here's this criminal being executed for his crimes, and he uses his final words to speak the truth that nobody else is willing to say. Everybody else is shoving it under the rug, but he's willing to say it. This man has done nothing wrong. Could it be that his willingness to die or his acceptance of his mortality, is actually what led this criminal to the truth? Could it be that um, it's because he had accepted his death and he had nothing left to lose in telling the truth? Because for the Pharisees, for the Sadducees, for the Romans, the scribes, the onlookers, the truth would have been costly. To enter into the light would have exposed them as frauds, so they decided to remain in the darkness. And they traded the calling to justice for status and comfort. But here's this criminal, a holy fool, pointing out what must have been obvious to everybody, but was, which was an unspeakable truth. This man has done nothing wrong. I think it seems that only when someone has come to terms with who they are, has come to terms with their sin, that they're not the hero of the story, in fact, they're oftentimes the victim or even the criminal in the story, that they're the villain, that they're able to speak what's true. 
Everyone else who's still holding on to the illusion that they're righteous, the, the Pharisees, the governors, the onlookers, all of them, they're all blind to the truth here. Their lie about themselves keeps them from seeing the truth about everything else. It dilutes them. This is why Jesus says that between the Pharisee praying about how good he is in the temple and the tax collector praying for mercy, the tax collector is the one who goes home justified. The tax collector may be a sinner, but at least he's honest about it. At least he's truthful. At least he's willing to confess. The Pharisee probably is also a sinner, and maybe to a lesser degree, but what little sin he has, he's unwilling to look at. His pride is masking it. Uh, another example, in the Beatitudes, Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the righteous, does he? It would have been easy for him to say that. He doesn't. He adds some words. He says, rather, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. To hunger and thirst for something means you have to acknowledge you need it, right? If you already are righteous, why, why would you hunger and thirst for righteousness? You're already righteous. It's only when you recognize your need for it that you'll hunger and thirst for it. And that is who Jesus calls blessed. So here's this criminal, and he's looking his punishment in the face. And he's accepting that it's just what he's getting. And he's trying to get the other criminal to see this. And the other criminal cannot see his sin. He's deluded as well. He thinks that he's deserving of salvation. He can, he's uh, deserving of being taken off the cross. He's just like the Pharisees, the onlookers. So of the two criminals perhaps guilty of the same crimes, given the same punishment, facing the same fate, suffering the same pain, of both of these criminals, the criminal who confesses his sin is the one that's saved. So what does that teach us about Jesus? What does it teach us about being a disciple? The church is not a place for perfect people. The church is not a place for worthy people. It's not a place for the healthy. It's a place for the sick. The church is a place for the honest, the people who are willing to confess and plead, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. So if you come in through these doors and you're expecting that everyone here is going to be perfect and that you yourself have to be perfect, that you have to clean yourself up, if you're uh, walking in through these doors unwilling to confess your sin, you're not going to find what you're looking for. This isn't the place for you. This is a place for the sinners, for the unworthy. Anyhow, oh, some of you just went through your uh, 10-week discipleship journey. You're maybe still in it. Um, recently went through week five, the Strongholds Week. Didn't raise your hand if you've, if you've been through that. Yeah, a couple over here. The Strongholds Week is a, a quintessential part of the journey, and, and the essence of that week is confession. Admitting that we're broken is an uncomfortable and risky and scary part of the journey. But in the end, it frees us from delusion, frees us from lying to ourselves, opening our eyes in a way that not many other things, not many other practices or disciplines can. Anyhow, it's at this point in the story that my jaw hit the floor. So look, look with what, what the thief says next. Look with me what the thief says next. This is verse 43. And he said, Jesus, remember me, when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
If we read it too quickly, it's easy to pass by these words. They sound kind of like a deathbed conversion, a dying man's frantic Hail Mary pass at redemption. And it's easy to hear in these words the posture of a teacher's pet, the pathetic longing for attention, the craving for validation, the subtle arrogance. But when we remember who is speaking these words and where, it is, where they are when they're being spoken, and especially where Jesus is when he's hearing these words, I think they might just be the most faithful words uttered of any person in all the Gospels. And I know that's a really broad statement, but let me explain. The king of the Jews that this criminal was addressing was hanging on a cross. Imagine any political leader being executed. Are they at the height of their power? When Muammar Gaddafi was being dragged through the streets of Libya, was he at his most authoritative? When Abraham Lincoln had the, the barrel of the gun pushed up to the back of his head, was that when he was his most presidential? When Julius Caesar was being stabbed by all the people that he thought were his friends, was he about to come into his too, true imperial capacity? No. So why would this criminal, who's looking at a dying man, looking at the blood dripping from his back, the holes in his feet and hands, the crowns of thorns on his head, the labored breathing, hearing the death rattles of this man, say, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What kingdom? What kingdom is to be had here? This man was about to die. The 12 disciples were scratching their heads long before this at the notion that Jesus would have to suffer and die. They couldn't wrap their minds around that reality. But here is this criminal staring into the gaunt face of a crushed man, and he sees in the eyes of Jesus a suffering servant. He understood what Peter couldn't see, that the serpent had to be allowed to wound the heel of the Son of Man, that the Messiah must suffer, that the life of the world must be allowed to sink into the, the mire and into the depths of death to fill it to the brim with his life. And this leads to the big idea for the day. If you're going to meditate on one thing for the rest of this week, if you're going to pray about one thing this week, if you're going to write one thing on your fridge or write one thing on the forehead of your oldest child, please send me a picture of that if you do that. I, extra, extra pastor points if you do that. Um, this is going to be it. The kingdom, there we go, the kingdom is in the cross. The kingdom is in the cross. Here between these two crosses, the eyes of a dying sinner met the eyes of the Lamb of God. And here, the criminal comes to see that the cross is his inauguration. Truly, this was the king of the Jews. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He saw that through the doors of death, Jesus is the king. And Jesus says as much in his response. Look what he says. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Notice that he doesn't say, in three days when I'm resurrected, you will be with me in paradise. No. Today, both Jesus and the criminal were headed to that to paradise that day. The wicked criminal thought that life was found in being saved from the cross. He said, save yourself and us. He looked to Jesus dying on the cross and could not see salvation in it. Which is funny, because now we all know 
that that's where our salvation comes from. The very thing that the, the, the wicked criminal could not see the salvation in, that thought, he thought was the, the dying hope, the dying potential of salvation, was when salvation was in its truest form and power. The wise criminal understood that life was found through the cross, not being saved from the cross, that the kingdom is in the cross. So now we come to the crux, and pardon the pun there, of the matter. We Christians believe something that's counterintuitive. And it's not something that's just incidental. It's not on the fringes of our faith. It's the very heart of our faith. We're taught by Christ that life as we know it here, life in the world, is not true life. We're being lied to. We're taught by Christ that life as we know it is not true life. In fact, this earthly life reeks a lot more like death to Jesus than real life. True life is found in dying to this world. Dying. We aren't called to live our best life now. Indeed, we couldn't if we tried. Our best life is found in the wounds of Jesus. True and abundant life is found in the love that was displayed on Calvary. The love that God only can give. The love that awaits us on the other side of death. The love that's willing to pour itself out for his friends. So when you look at the man hanging from the tree, what do you see? Do you see a fool claiming to be a king? Do you see a savior that couldn't be bothered to save anyone? Do you see a lost cause? A romantic but fruitless display of affection? Because that's what the, the first thief saw. That's what the first criminal saw. But the second thief sees something far different. The second thief saw a king ascending his throne. The second thief saw in the crucified Jew hanging next to him the power of an emperor. The second thief saw that Jesus' resurrection of this, I'm sorry, rejection of this world was where his power shined brightest. Jesus was not satisfied with bringing down the criminals and himself from the cross so that they could live again in the world, in the ashes of this broken world. Jesus' death was his condemnation of this world in himself. It was the crucifixion of humanity, of that bent and broken humanity, the sinful flesh of Adam. Jesus' death was God's booming no to Adam and his children. Jesus' suffering was to offer eternal life to those who would be willing to suffer with him, to those who would die to this world with him. And that's supposed to be us, friends. We are those who are supposed to be dying to this world with Jesus. We are the people that are chosen for death. The gift that we've been given of life is wrapped in death. I know it all sounds a little bit complicated, and if not complicated, at least counterintuitive, but it's really simple. Jesus isn't going to save you from death. He's saving you through death. He's saving you through it. And so if as disciples, as students, we're going to follow our rabbi or our teacher, we have to learn that the cross is his teaching tool, that the cross is the center of discipleship. Our teacher told us early on in his ministry that the one who seeks to walk behind him must take up his cross and follow him. Jesus doesn't take us off the cross. He puts us on it. 
the objective isn't rescuing us, it's resurrecting us. So let's make this practical. If we're talking about the theme, or yeah, we're, we're talking about the theme of prayer through the Gospel of Luke, here we can see two prayers being offered. The first criminal is offering a prayer of sorts, and he asks Jesus to take him off the cross so that he can live in the world again. His eyes aren't on the kingdom. His eyes are on the world. And Jesus makes it clear to us in the Gospel of John and all throughout the Gospels that his kingdom is not of this world. The two are mutually exclusive. They repel one another. Jesus doesn't answer the first thief because he recognizes that he's being used by the first thief in his pursuit of the world. The second criminal offers a prayer with his eyes fixed behind the cross, beyond the cross, beyond this moment's suffering and into the glory of the kingdom. Like Jesus, the second thief doesn't despise the cross because he sees that the kingdom is in the cross. So when you pray, do you pray like the first thief, asking to be taken off of your cross so that you can gain the world, even if it means losing your soul? Or do you pray like the second thief, willing to forfeit this earthly life and all of the lies that it offers you, all of the, the, the feigned hopes in order to be with Jesus again in paradise? This is what following Jesus is going to get you. It will get you crucified. And the day you're crucified, that is the day that you'll be with Jesus in paradise. That's where Jesus rests, is just beyond the cross. So as we close, I have to be honest. I have to take a step back. Recently, I've been struggling a lot in my prayer life. Um, I feel like there are a handful of prayers that when I pray them, it feels like they just bounce off the ceiling and come back right back. Um, they're not being delivered. <laughs> um, and it makes me really frustrated with God, that silence, that waiting. Um, and I find myself praying things to him like, if you really are who you say you are, why aren't you doing anything? Why aren't you answering me? And man, it sounds a lot like, are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. So when I come to preach, I'm often coming to preach mostly to myself. Usually the, the spirit gets a hold of me when I'm uh, trying to think through a message. And, and there is a healing aspect to preaching. There's a privilege to be up here um, because the spirit confronted me this week. And I've been asking myself the question all week, am I missing the forest for the trees here? Am I so bent on getting what I'm asking from God that I stopped acknowledging that the God that I'm praying to is the one that died on the cross? Have I begun to view my best life now as God's first priority? What about you guys? As you pray for your kids to develop well, as you pray for your relationship, or you pray for a relationship at all, or you pray for your, your marriage to blossom, you pray for financial providence, you pray to keep your job or to get a new job or to get a promotion at your job, you pray for an answer to a question that's bugging you, for chronic pain that you've been dealing with, for the disease that you just found out about that you have, or the illness that you've been suffering from for a long time. Do you ever find your cross inconvenient? Do you despise your cross? Because I do. I despise my cross. And I can't imagine that I'm alone in that. 
If you can relate, I think that the first thief has something to teach us all. The kingdom is in the cross. The kingdom starts with the man hanging from the tree. The kingdom starts with the crown of thorns. So, for example, maybe in this next week, or maybe, maybe you've been praying that as the economy suffers, a possible recession rolls in, your job will stay secure. Maybe there's some anxiety in you about your financial security. And, and maybe in this upcoming week, your boss calls you into their office and your stomach starts churning a little bit. And you take, take a seat in front of their desk and maybe they say, I'm really sorry, but we're going to have to let you go. Maybe your job gets automated. Maybe they found a different person to fill the role. Maybe they just can't sustain the, the position anymore. And maybe as you're walking out of their office, you're looking at God going, what are you doing? I thought you were going to provide for me. I thought you were going to keep me safe. And those of us who think like the first thief might be tempted to give up on God there or to take a little break, or to trust him a little less, offer some prayers that are a little more vague um, so that we don't get hurt again. They may look to the, the suffering and the uncertainty and say, I expected better from you, God. I'm disappointed. But those of us who have a mind like the second thief will look through the bitter tears at our circumstances and we'll remember that our Messiah was crowned with a crown of thorns, that his disaster, his suffering, his death, they led not only to his resurrection, his new life, his spiritual body, but to the redemption of the entire world. Those of us like the second thief will look at Jesus in that moment and we will say, show me the kingdom in this cross. Show me the kingdom that I'm carrying in this cross. We're about to open the tables for communion, um, and I'll invite the worship team up here in a second. Um, we're about to open the tables for communion, and what a better time, or what, there's no better time to consider the call of the cross. So as you come up to uh, partake of the table with us, um, as you remember what Christ did on that cross for you, I encourage you to reflect and ask yourself the question, where is the cross? I'm sorry, where is the kingdom in the cross that I'm carrying? Where is the paradise that's lurking beyond my pain? And even if you can't come up with a solid answer for how this can be redeemed, how this moment can be resurrected for you, do you trust, not based on what you see, but based off of the one that you're following, that there is going to be redemption? Do you trust that there is a, a kingdom beyond the cross? That there is paradise if you wait just a little longer? Let's pray together. Father, I am uh, I'm convicted and I'm condemned by this passage. I am constantly thinking about my cross in terms of how I can get away from it how I can get myself off it, how I can beg you to get me off of it. And I forget the, the purifying power of death, the transformative power of death, and that the center of my faith is your death.
um, your son's death on the cross. Lord, may, I, may, may we as a church be those who look to our crosses and seek the kingdom. May we be like the second thief and not like the first. And would you please remember us and bring us into paradise. In your holy name we pray. Amen.